Funny it rained the first night and this night. I hope the the clouds kindly allowed you to listen to the Dharma talk without missing the eclipse, but I hope they go away. Just before the retreat, I was showing um, a friend of mine who's from Chile a, a Tibetan painting that I have where there's this kind of halo behind one of the figures, not completely unlike the little squiggles behind that Buddha back there. And um, she leaned in really close to me and she said, um, that looks just like this Andean weaving form, the way the rainbow colors in the painting sort of got brighter toward the middle and faded at the edges and then the other color would pulsate like that. You know, it's sort of like, I had meant to bring an image of this, but Say you can imagine a stripe that's really bright in the middle and a little bit lighter towards the edge, and then another color starts that's also light at the edge and intense at the middle, kind of like that. And um, she said that's called uh, kisa. And what it meant is it has so many meanings, and it's actually a spiritual teaching woven into a cloth of ordinary use. And it's how things fade away to make room for other things or how people make room for other people, like peoples make room for other peoples, or you know, we make room for what's coming next. And the other thing is that the kisa is related to the rainbow, and also in its way of fading at the edges is related to the way a fruit will turn into a raisin, like dries in the sun and sort of dries out, and the way Hatred can become love. And it's woven into the fabric of some of those societies such that the brightness of the rainbow colors is meant to exist in order to support people during festivals when the music is sad, you know? So it's all really interesting that the culture has multiple dimensions of expression. But one of the other things about the rainbow that I'd like to say is that the rainbow is a teacher about how illusion functions in our perception. That it sort of seems solid and not really, but that's also how we live. So we also live in the, in the kisa of things appearing to change. And maybe the web underneath may not be subjected to the same color dye. You know, the web changes its colors, but the web is still strong. And we may not see the web when we're just looking at the colors. The other thing that Cecilia told me is, um, she's an artist and she does these amazing performances. And I did one with her that I wished I could do here, where she gets this like soft wool and she lays it on the floor and then she invites everyone to sort of get under it. And then she sings. And you feel just so like cared for and her songs are like these kind of nonverbal things like glossolalia or something. So it's just sounds, it's not. And I sure wish I could do that instead of give a talk. Um, And then you get to take the wool and you can make beards out of it or wigs or scarves or stuff. You can take some home or give it to kids later and stuff like that. So, um, and the last thing I want to say about Cecilia is that 
she did a genetics test about 10 years ago, and her family had always thought that they were from Spain, you know, like a lot of Latin American people due to oppression um, have identified as being white, and she found out that she's like 90% indigenous. So she told her parents, and her father said he wished he had died before he heard this news. And that's also something about how illusion functions in our perception that um, as we move out into our world, I want us to remember about who we are and who we seem to be, that Howie was discussing that and how solid our surface identities can seem. So even though the kisas or the apparent changes in our experience can seem to obscure the deeper nature of experience itself, there's also some reason to explore uh, through differences and recognize differences in changes. So as this retreat ends or comes to an end, we're both, you know, in a certain way, we're at the fruition of our practice here, like having had the momentum of so many days together. And you'll see when you leave that there'll be some momentum that carries that, you know, maybe deeper than your surface preoccupations for a while, but that too will fade away. So to recognize that, you know, the retreat was a special time when in a certain way the light of our awareness is able to see more than usual because of the particular conditions that we share here that facilitate that and thanks to you know the monastic design that we've inherited from the Asian tradition which is, exists in other most traditions at times of retreat but uh, the help of the staff and each other to hold this sort of shape when I'm just feeling into that when it feels that awareness can be deeper and can know more and can illumine more for us. So I call to mind the 8th century, I think that was his century, Yogi Shantideva of India, who in his monastery was um, known as eat, sleep, shit, because he didn't really follow the schedule. (laughs) He didn't seem to be doing anything. So the other rule-following monks said, like, why don't you give a Dharma talk? Let's see how much you've learned. And the story is that Shantideva rose into the air and uttered in one you know, great oration the whole of the Bodhicharya Avatara, the Bodhisattva's way of life, which is kind of like a, a different vision or turn of the wheel of Buddhism and one of the great spiritual documents of humanity. And then he just disappeared. <laughs> <Oof>. <laughs> which is kind of like a legendary way of saying he gave an amazing Dharma talk (laughs) and then went and watched the rest of the football game or something, which is in overtime, I hear. (laughs) Anyway, um, so one of the things that he said that I think about as being like this retreat is um, just as a flash of lightning on a dark and cloudy night for an instant brightly illuminates all. Likewise, in this world, through the might of enlightened mind, a wholesome thought rarely and briefly appears. The great strength of evil being extremely intense, what else can overcome it except an awakened mind? 
So it almost feels like, you know, this lightning flash has laid out a little bit of the landscape of our life in a certain gruesome detail, maybe in some cases. But um, I feel like I want to illuminate a little bit of a landscape that we might have understood, that we might be able to take home, because it's as if a lot of us or people have apprehensions about when I go home and um, what can I sustain. So right now it's as if we're still in this lightning flash and um, Solwazi was saying, you know, there's this sacred mountain that you can climb to the top of and you can see the universe from there. It's such a beautiful thing. So I want us to recall and remember um, our vision of the universe that each of you can see from where you are and I'll try to illuminate certain things but it will be really your vision that carries you. So was there a time like when the rosemary flower seems to speak to us or did you sense a pure expression of yourself when Howie suggested that the Eunice was the Buddha, he was hinting um, broadly at that, um, that that's enough. Was it the invitation to kindness or to open to your suffering or what is felt in your own heart? Um, Even just now, what will be in your memory? My grandmother from Texas used to say, memories that bless and burn (laughs) from your retreat. (laughs) The beauty and the pain, the kisa of that, the light and the dark, so to speak. And I don't like light and dark so much as metaphors because the darkness can be so comforting in so many ways and so beautiful in its own way. So I'm not saying that that way. But as there's been an invitation to embrace both sides in experience, I invite us to embrace the revelations of both sides because they're both the dharma, the suffering and the end of suffering, how um, the delusions might have entrapped us for periods of time like, and feel so real and so intense like, and so painful and how we struggle to be free and then how the delusion will fade away, either fade away just because it does, like you actually can get distracted from one of those horrible moments, like by something, like something else starts happening, or because you saw into it in some way, or because it helped you to give birth to compassion so that you held it in some different way. You know, so the suffering and the end of the suffering, like just by impermanence, or by your practice, or by someone's being kind to you in some way that, they may not have known how much it meant holding the door for you or whatever it was, the coming and going of suffering and how the delusion that feels so real can actually not be real. And part of it not being real is why it's so horrible at the time because you're sort of in it and you're thrashing around, but you you know, what, what is really entrapping us? It's like nothing. It doesn't have arms or legs. It's kind of the way, as I was saying, the rainbow is an engine that teaches how illusion operates in our perception. And things that feel real are kind of 
part of what we have to acknowledge as our shared reality. Like if we didn't have words, if we didn't have agreements, if there wasn't a clock, you know, and then how many of us were like racing to be on time for things or feeling like we were breaking different rules or, you know, how all of those cultural appurtenances can feel so solid in ways that things we bang up against and say like, I am the one who is doing it wrong. Um, I'm offending everyone. I'll get back to that later. But the other thing about like as we go in our into our outer world, like this timeless night, um, we're also on the you could call it a sacred night or something. There's the eclipse that's out there, uh, the first full moon of the year. One of the times when the moon and the earth are the closest. So maybe we should all be howling. Maybe I don't know. Um, I used to do that when I was a child. I used to pretend I like to howl at the moon. <laughs> but with the moon being closer to the earth, um, it also affects the water in our bodies more. You know, we're actually, all the water we're carrying around is part of the waters of the earth, so it might make us feel more emotional. There are some measurable effects of um, lunar shifts. It's also the eve of Martin Luther King Day, which is such a beautiful time to come into back into civic life of, you know, a, one of our prophets of this culture, as we know, was a very real and very flawed person, also a visionary who kept his vision steady and um, made some predictions. And I want to say I was going to tell you some news or if there was any news and nothing like too intense happened. It's kind of a little bit more of the same. You know, there was... <laughs> There was a women's march, um, and a corporate foundation paid to keep the Martin Luther King's historical park open. So tomorrow and this weekend, people can visit Ebenezer Baptist Church and make a pilgrimage. And so there's forms of, you know, beauty and vision and enlightenment present during the shutdown. So people can honor him at his home and his church. But I think we could also honor him by feeling into the dream and the vision of a, of a love that unites humanity and that doesn't put some people higher and some people lower. I have a dream, he said, that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they're judged not by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. And then a little bit later he said, um, we have more difficult days ahead the realistic fact is that we still have a long, long way to go. So his children weren't able to grow up in a world where the color of their skin wasn't a source of judgment. In fact, some of those shades have shifted or the sense of hope um, and the sense of you know, holding a vision that keeps changing. You know, It kind of goes back and forth like suffering and in, you know, and the end of suffering, and the needle isn't steady, and some things have gained, and I think more people have deeper understanding of social justice issues, but there's also, you know, reactions in the other direction. So on the National Mall on Saturday, there, was a, there were two, I like the Spanish word, manifestations, like protests or something, like people showing up, and there was the right to life, 
group and an indigenous group who were both showing up for their beliefs. And a bunch of young men from a Catholic school uh, surrounded one of the elders of the Omaha nation who was, he's a uh, Vietnam vet and he's a practitioner of spirituality where he sings and he prays and he keeps a fire and he comes every year to Arlington Cemetery on Veterans Day to do a ceremony to remember all the indigenous men who lost their lives in service of the US government. So he's an experienced and strong practitioner and when these young men started jumping up and down in front of him and telling him to go home and that the wall was, a wall should be built to keep people out who looked like him, he said he just remembered his wife who had died in the prayer and kept singing and praying right in their face. And later on he was then, you know, they didn't do anything to him. They were acting like they might or they were trying to get pick a fight or something like that. And their, their parents were just standing around watching them do this, make, a, make America great again. And afterwards he was interviewed and he said a number of really beautiful things like, why don't they go out and make America great by feeding some hungry people? <laughs> instead of bothering me and also saying that um, at the time of indigenous um, culture there, there weren't walls and there weren't prisons and there was more of a sense of community of taking care of everyone, the young people and old people and you know not that there weren't wars and stuff but it wasn't like that. So now it's like even as we've opened our hearts and minds the invitation to hold our vision steady and remember the dream of Martin Luther King is like we're going out into a time when it does sometimes feel um, that the great strength of evil is extremely intense in the words of Shantideva. And, and yet we have examples um, from human beings and from our friends of holding steady and um, being able to hold a vision in our words and in our hearts and bodies and bringing that vision forward. There's um, Common the Rapper has kind of redone that. I have a dream speech so that he chops it all up. I won't try to perform it, but <laughs> hold the same fight that made Martin Luther the king. In between lean and the fiends and the hustle and the schemes, I put together pieces of a dream. So it feels like, as Howie was saying, that the vision that we have of freedom for ourselves that here feels like we're cultivating it so deeply in an internal way, like in order to hold this vision, to hold the vision of freedom for not only ourselves, is very important. So to recall like what will support us to keep holding this vision of freedom that it's not exclusive. Like when you think about like enlightenment or something, how could it belong to one person? How could it be located and be a possession of one person? How could it even be considered just to be inside of a human mind? Since the human mind is actually an expression of something else. Um, but our vision 
you know, waxes and wanes and grows over our lifetime and changes as to what it is. And, you know, all versions are kind of valid and they, you know, as all our minds are different, it's reflected differently in every mind. But I think I'd like to just talk a little bit about aspects of things that support us to stay steady, things that we might have learned here that we could take out um, with us that, um, like that, what um, makes things difficult, how we lose it. So number one is uh, remembering our essential nature, uh, presence, awareness, how we spoke last night so beautifully, the innate ability to be kind that we sometimes have and sometimes lose, but can cultivate in practice, to be kind to ourselves and help ourselves while we're helping others or help others while we're helping ourselves, and to realize that that's not, it's a non-binary gender or something of, of love. And just to hammer this one a little because, you know, there, if our retreat was going on longer, there would be more about the nature of freedom to talk about um, that I feel like what we're looking for is also looking for us. You know, that it's like we don't have the ability to sort of like have a special little whistle and have the, you know, have the freedom arise, but we can bring ourselves to a place using the means at our disposal, which is our body, mind, attention, and heart, to where it can find us. It's like the spirits can can find us or the spirit of enlightenment can come in and it comes in in little ways like remembering that you're thinking like where the hell does that sudden remembering come from like oh you know that sort of it is like the lightning in the in the darkness in a way like that Chanti Deva talks about that insight like although we've cultivated it by meditation as much as we don't know why we're suddenly thinking about such and such yet again we also don't always know why, or experientially, it's not obvious when we're going to remember and wake up. Like to sit down at your seat and for 10 minutes not know that you're actually sitting here because you're all involved in something, and all of a sudden you're like, oh wow, I'm actually on my cushion. You know, what allows that? <laughs> so that's the kisa again, like the, the not knowing isn't permanent. It can seem like it's completely blocked, our knowing, but then nor is our knowing permanent or our recognition isn't permanent either. But I think the freedom has a life force to it. Like Sayadaw Tejaniya says, you never know when it's going to come. You know, it's like a butterfly sitting on your shoulder. Like it's going to be suddenly in the smell of the soap in the shower when you have some kind of moment, you know, of clarity. We don't know when those, you know, beautiful comings together will come. But we learn how to open ourselves through this path in a way that's really very beautiful and, and not, um, not narrow. Please don't let it be narrow. It actually helps us away from the narrowness of our self. And we also, in some way, have the freedom, or reality has the freedom to manifest in very horrific ways. And one of the things that we can see is that maybe there's some lawfulness, that there is a path to seeing how we're already whole and complete and beautiful as we are. And we also see that there are causes and conditions that can lead us and others to hate ourselves or to feel deficient or 
to have everything but that and to be easy to control by, you know, manipulation and suggestion that you're not good enough and stuff like that. Like, it seems like there are a lot of mechanisms like that. And I feel like some of the ways that we bump up against the rules here are manifestations of that, of how much expectation is put on us to be perfect or in different ways compliant rather than to see the schedule here as more of a support and remember that it's for support rather than uh, like someone's going to cut your fingers off or something when you're late. So this dignity that we have as humans, like um, in our bodies, in our minds, in our hearts, can be lost and found, but external conditions can't take it away from us because it's woven in. It's actually part of our nature. So when you hear Martin Luther King talk about love and you, you feel it, you feel it's real that there could be human love and there could be a society that's based on that because there's love in us and we can be reminded by certain voices and certain conditions or we can be uh, taught to hate like those young men on the mall. They can start to feel that they belong here more than someone else who actually does belong here. So it's very poignant that oneself also forgets and remembers and forgets and remembers. But as we practice remembering more, then we remember more. Like it's a habit. It becomes more of a habit to keep finding ourselves. There's that joke that um, about the person who's like, I actually shouldn't tell this joke without saying it. Sadly reminds me of Katrina or something. But the person on top of the house saying, oh God, come and rescue me. I don't know if you've heard that one, but you know, and a helicopter comes by and they say, like, no, I'm waiting for God to do it. And, and finally, the, God sticks his head out of the cloud and said, you know, I sent you that robo, what do you, you know? Like, you're already, you, you already have in you what you need is what that was meant to be. So although self-blame and self-hatred or hating others or judgment or irritability or arrogance, and we see this in ourself in the retreat or shame, those patterns take over. Please don't forget. Please really don't forget. Um, don't forget entirely. So one time I was in, um, in India in Benares, and there was the, um, where it's a very sacred place of uh, you know, people confronting death and dying and burning bodies and stuff. And, I was a pilgrim there and being respectful, but I didn't always know all of the traditions of how to be respectful. So I saw this beautiful garland of roses and I smelled it, I sniffed it. And the shopkeeper came out in a very angry way and scolded me because it's not proper to take the fragrance that's to be offered for the ceremony. And there are so many strands in the experience and feeling rebuked and the look on his face and, you know, the possible fundamentalism or unforgivingness or disrespect, but myself also being like a, a white tourist there to, you know, without, who knew, who knew what intentions, but just not behaving properly. So it, it took me a while to not flatten out into separation of that person made me feel bad, so they're bad, you know? Mm -hmm. And losing it and finding it again and 
to see how much of my own humanity got lost into that othering from that moment, you know, where I felt hurt and it was necessary to sort of push away the other person. And as I've worked through it over the years, I felt like, you know, the, there's something beautiful about a, a fragrance that is just offered without this extractive, ment- you know, like it's beautiful to smell the roses. And I had a, one nice teaching from someone once about that to really smell it and just smell it once so that you're really there. Like, don't go back and sniff it four times. Like, go. <laughs> and then walk away. But, but also not smelling it and thinking, like, in a way, the offering of spirituality is a little bit like that. Like, we don't always know where this is going to go, and we don't always know what, where our actions will end, and this subject-object and action and result sort of mechanism in which we're trapped a lot of the time. And it's, you know, it's a survival mechanism to try to understand our environment and avoid dangers and get what we need and stuff like that. But there's something really nice in being released from that. So I like to hold my practice that way, as if it were just sort of being offered um, as best I can do. So as Shanti Deva says, there's wholesome thoughts and unwholesome thoughts to see how we create the enemy in our mind. And in some ways, the way we recreate our idea of what freedom might be as if it was always far away or in the future or when we're better, when we're done with our path or when we've walked a lot farther, um, we'll keep it never happening, you know? And that's a teaching, too, that... You know, our, our happiness is not in the future, in the past. It's, it's here if it's going to be anywhere. So how much of what we see, even around our spiritual path, is a little bit like that rainbow illusion, like here's these statues up here, and I can recall in my practice when they really seem to be images of someone. I mean, actually, the moment when the Buddha put his hand on the earth and touched the earth was a moment of when he was freaking out, basically, or, you know, um, establishing a connection with the earth and saying he was here of the earth, you know. So it's kind of like that moment of touching the ground, our ground now. But sometimes those statues look to me like people who are saying they want to stay steady for us, like they want to represent to us what what we could be, or they want to make some kind of offering. And of course they're just made out of wood, so it's like our mind is constantly involved in what we see. So practicing to see all of that, like how much our minds are an incredible force in our world and in the world of, all of each other. So the things that support us are like the rules and the instructions, like the essence. And then some kind of structure also can really help because there's a parable of a sesame seed. You know, it has oil in it, but you don't get the oil until you crush it with discipline. I mean, that's all metaphors are faulty, but (laughs) we might look at our life and see what patterns... Um, support or create harm 
for us and others in our life. And if we have access to making a change, if you want to see a change, you might make a change. But one of the things we'll talk more about this tomorrow is look what happened after you sat for so long and walked for so long. It's kind of like a confirmation that this works. I mean, aren't you kind of in an altered state? You'll really know when you get out of here that you're in an altered state. (laughs) So remembering this, Paul Fleischman, the uh, teacher I was quoting before, said, I sit to anchor myself in certain moods, to organize my life around my heart and my mind and radiate to others what I discover. Though I shake in strong winds, I return to this basic way of living. So this basic way of living gets more obvious in the simplicities of this place where the food is cooked kind of collectively and we're away from the internet and maybe we get a chance to do less. And isn't this also perhaps a teaching about, you know, how we felt when we came in and how we feel when we go out, like maybe doing a little bit less if we can. And if we don't have the luxury or the option of doing less, can we do less at other times, like when we're on the bus or in a car, like just orient toward finding moments, like Thich Nhat Hanh has that phrase that at a stoplight say, thank you from, for slowing me down on my rush to death. You know, like <laughs> instead of being sorry that you got stopped. Because <laughs> we do, we start to, you know, rev up. <laughs> Here, I think, more, in a certain way, more easy to assimilate is there's a message of, of tolerance for the vulnerable and imperfect person that we are and that each other is, this underlying sense of, of love and compassion for all of the experiences that we go through, the delusions and the beauty. A sixth century Zen monk said, true freedom is being without anxiety about imperfection. And that's something I feel like for me, it's, it's somewhat easy to remember it and to embody it in some way that um, maybe it's just because I'm very imperfect and it makes me feel better. And <laughs> but to remember to be with ourselves and know that we will probably do stuff that we regret or make mistakes and that there's so much going on that we can't prepare for, which I think might be part of the anxiety for leaving the retreat is, you know, we don't always know what we're going to meet. But I wanted to mention or sort of shout out to the, to the two Tanyas on the retreat who happened to be pregnant. And, you know, you can't rehearse certain important, important things. And some who are facing the decline and death of the people whom they, we love. And even all of us who are maybe hyper aware of our own failings and failures and uncertainties and not always knowing where it's going to go or what we should choose and that rather than becoming super meditators or experts at following our breath like or superhumans who will never again be grumpy uh, never again say something dumb that you know never again blame someone cuz we're pissed off about something else or that kind of stuff like it's more about being in our life without a shield, as my friend Susan says, Susan Piver. 
And it's not something that we can experience entirely through our logic. Like we can remind ourselves and encourage ourselves through our thinking brain, but it's kind of a training in feeling and in softening and in opening our heart. Another recurring theme, other than breaking the rules in this retreat, has been um, that I've heard from several people. It may not be your theme, but it's something that I feel like has come up in my you know, limited experience uh, and has felt salient for me is people talking about joy and sorrow at the same time or the sound of the stream and the light of the moon at the same time or things that feel slightly opposite kind of being together. And when our mind is, our heart is more open, um, then it, there's a way, like it was in Kate's description, that in a way the inner jabber or jabba can become the generator of love for us, like the opposite. Can, the poison can turn into the medicine, kind of. And that's really something beautiful that we can do and that we can remember. Like... Um, to open to things. And I was speaking with one person today about how my father died five years ago and I sometimes still feel like crying about him not being around. I feel it every day. And we had a very difficult relationship for most of his life and my life. And, you know, I won't go into all of that, but we discovered sort of each other in the last three or four years. And I really miss him. And it's, it's kind of beautiful to let it be felt. You know, a lot of times it just feels like I'm being stuck with a, something very pointed that I dislike, and I just think, of, well, why am I still like this? You know, and that's when my mind is relatively not available, but when I can really open to it and actually feel the pain, it's like the relationship is there again, you know, that how much, how much I loved him, more than I probably knew in a way. So why we get anxious when... Some of us, I'm sure some of us, and maybe the same person is really eager to get out of here at certain times, like, woohoo, I don't have, no more of this. You know, like, Let me go eat ice cream or whatever. You know? Steak, french fries. But we might know that we're more tender than we usually are. Um, we might fear to lose the depths of this tenderness at the same time. You know, like that's kind of precious illumination that we might, that we'll lose. And I think in the spirit of Kisa, we have to be prepared to lose it. Otherwise, we're going to end up stealing the meditation cushions or something like this <laughs> as a souvenir. You know, try to, what are you going to try to carry with you here? So into some other things that we might find it easy to remember um, just as an ordinary person who's not meditating 24-7 the way we're doing is how easy it is to create internal divisions. Like that if we leave here, somehow our ability to be aware will be gone. You know, like we start to attach onto externals kind of in a certain way. So my Tibetan teacher likes to say that your heart body and mind are your meditation environment and they go with you everywhere. And uh, Dr. Tintin, who's a Burmese um, teacher who lives a little bit north of here, says that one of the main obstacles is believing that you can't be aware when these conditions will be taken away. 
and then you will sort of persuade yourself and what's that called like entrain yourself into thinking like well your mind will say like ah back to business as usual huh <laughs> let's go <laughs> you know so there's also a way that we can misidentify the exaltation that we get from the sheer concentration of being here with the awareness um, possibility you know like we can be aware when our minds are dimmer we can be aware of more rapidly incoming stimuli we can be aware in a sustainable way more spaciously and maybe not as kind of fine-grained but I almost feel like there's a way that our mind likes everything to be like kind of sharp-edged and defined and heavy and known and like that, like our breath. Like let's just, let me get glom onto an object here and that'll be my like anchor and stuff like that. Where the ability to really have an open awareness, which Howie introduced last night, can be very helpful. So I might talk a little bit about that tomorrow. But these highs will dissolve just as, you know, I remember my Catholic friend saying, um, God doesn't live in the church. You know, I don't go to church anymore because God doesn't live there. Um, I'd rather be outside. No, nor does your meditation practice live here. And what we really don't see yet with our conditioned vision is that the Dharma is everywhere and everything, all the time. It's what awareness is aware of everywhere. And it keeps changing, and change is part of the nature of the Dharma, so... Dogen said, a plantain weed has earth, water, fire, wind, emptiness, mind, consciousness, and wisdom as its roots, stems, branches, leaves, fruits, flowers, colors, and forms. So saying a plant is a manifestation of wisdom if you look at it in the right way. And then he goes on and says, the plantain is torn in the wind. And we know that even though it's torn, it's pure and clear and not a single particle is excluded. So as our mind is torn with winds and forces out there, our mindfulness and concentration may be torn apart, but our purity, our clarity, is, cannot be torn apart because that's actually what we are. It's a complete teaching called maybe the... Tibetans like to call it the great perfection, and the reason why it's a great perfection is because it includes not perfect. It would only be small perfection if it were perfect. But it's great perfection when it gets torn apart. So thinking about how, like, how Ian Solwazi were watching the football game and somebody did an incredible field goal. And we were thinking about why were they able to do this field goal when it was in such a crunch and stuff. And it's because of their training, because they trained. But part of what we train for is also knowing that our mindfulness and concentration may not always be available and that what then what do we do? What do we rely on at that time? I'm reading this fun book called Buddha's Bodyguard, which um, he says, like, when your ability to be present um, is completely unavailable, then you should perform an extraction. Like, <laughs> it's like the bodyguard, like, tries to take the, the Buddha along a safe route, and then he said all celebrities want to be seen, so they always go to unsafe places. And then he says if they get really stuck in a crowd, then you have to take them away. So... He's comparing it to ourselves, trying to stay on the eightfold path, and then our ego will make us want to be seen somewhere, and bad things will... Anyway, it's, that's too complicated. <laughs> 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 but say, like, recently, um, 
in my life, I feel like I've, I do sit a lot more than I used to. And having practiced for some time, like I recently went through this kind of bigger professional disappointment. Like I've been working on this novel since longer than anyone who's known me has even known me. You know, like, have you finished yet? No, I'm still working on it. So I finally finished it and I sent it to my agent. Ta-da! And my agent really didn't like it. Really, really didn't like it and was not kind about the ways they didn't like it. And, you know, just to say, I would have liked it if the agent had said, wow, well, this, here's what I think you were trying to do and here's what you could do to achieve the integrity of your goal. But no, instead. <laughs> so I revised it according to what I thought they wanted and they didn't like that either. So it's now twice. And on top of that, I have to go and be a Buddhist writer at Smith College for two weeks before I can get very much farther in this process. <laughs> so it was like, what am I going to do? Like, how can I be a Buddhist writer when I'm a total failure at the moment? So it seems. So the last thing I wanted to do was go to Smith College and present myself as a writer. I would rather hide and wish I had never accepted the appointment. Um, but then a friend, which is where I'm going in the end of this talk, said, well, maybe they didn't invite you because you had to be a success. And I thought about it, and I sort of like thought about the unhappy face of my agent and ex awaiting my next effort, you know, like how my mind was saying, oh, well, that's what's going to happen again. So how do I find my own integrity of, through this process of what I was trying to do? And here was the part of what the agent said that made sense, and try to get rid of all the resonance of the extreme critique um, and that actually has worked a little bit. And after I did worked on that for a little bit, and I called the, a person at Smith College and said, I wonder if we could get a little bit creative about my schedule here. That was scary. And they said, oh, yeah, no worries. Let's try to have it be fun for everybody. I didn't, like, go into my entire TMI of what's going on. I just said that I didn't know what I would be having there to read and blah, 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 and maybe some other people could read, or we could have more like a festival, or more people or more people involved than just me there, and they were fine with it, which shocked me. So that's what I'm saying about what we're looking for is also looking for us sometimes. Like, there's not a guarantee that they wouldn't have also been mean, because who knows? You just don't know. Um, but there's a kind of absolutism that can come into our mind when we're really clinging to some interpretation of events. And sometimes it's worth it to try to reach out and you know, hope for some kindness on the other end. And it can be there. And it's not something I would have ever done 10 years ago. I, would have, I don't know what I would have done. I might have pretended to be sick, I think. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so to rest with imbalance and anxiety and terror and all the stuff you don't want to feel, a lot of times it's really what needs to be felt. You know, it's like crying to be, to be felt, to be digested and assimilated. And whether it's, you know, no one should ever know about this. I'm going to die if anyone finds out. Or I can't do it. Or those kinds of feelings. Like, they're also part of the kisa, the rainbow. You know, that how solid they can become and how painful those knots can feel. So seeing how crazy we can be as part of wisdom. 
The last thing I would just want to talk about, just briefly because I've talked a bit, um, is what it felt like when that person on the other end of the email said, oh, that's fine, don't worry about it. You know, like the, the liberation of our heart doesn't always come just from us grinding it out on our own. You know, that sometimes it's from the world or from the non-human or from other people and from community. So as we're packing to go home or, you know, in some cases homelessness or further travels, um, this community is also shifting its weave a little bit. Um, Some people have left already and we won't be flying off to like the next place and settle on another lake like a bunch of swans or ducks and together like as we've been floating here on one thing. But I'd like to say that I'd like to feel that we could be kind of still feel our oneness in the different ways that as everyone suffers differently, everyone uh, brings liberation differently through our own life, you know, through our own place, and that there's a way that we could really acknowledge that we were doing something here together that's really important and like Fleischman said, that we'd like to radiate a little bit of what we've discovered, how much what we've been given here by the tradition and by each other can become something that we don't be extractive about or try to keep for ourselves. Like, we might as well spend it when we go out. You know, and to some degree, you won't be able to avoid it being a little bit different um, with people. But it's like, Let's not let the doors close between us or behind us as we leave and not fear that, you know, the needs of others are suddenly going to sweep us away or, um, you know, that we're even that we're the one who has everything to give um, when we leave here. It's kind of just offering back our practice. And in that, I'd like to say that, as I've shared a couple of humble stories, I feel really happy and proud of having been able to become a, a teacher, you know, even though I'm not, I must be the great perfection in its imperfection, but also what I've learned and been able to be a part of and um, to help to coordinate the teacher training has been like such an incredible privilege to learn from the people being trained and to feel like it's sort of like creating capacity and resiliency, I feel, in many communities and learning and exchanging wisdom and love with 20 people, almost all. I'm the only straight white one in the room, which is fabulous, and I've learned so much. But it feels like sometimes by turning a small wheel, we can seem to be turning other wheels, and we don't know where the, all those turnings are going to go. So I actually had made a prayer to have like something that would respond to the situation of the world a little bit before. You know, I was getting a little bit like, I wouldn't say exactly bored, but something. It felt like the stakes were rising and I wanted to be able to help with some of that. And it seemed to, I don't know. Sometimes if you put out an aspiration, you just don't know what's going to come of it. So I'm pretty happy about that. It hasn't been easy, and of course it is. Um, it just is what it is.
So this song or vision of freedom also includes some kind of offering of, you know, of our practice into the mystery of all the connections that we don't know where they will all go. So I'd just like to invite us to, as much as we've enjoyed the nature here, to maybe complete the cycle by offering back some gratitude to the waters and the trees around and to the turkeys that were kind of obligated to this planet in a sense. Even the, the Buddha had a sutta, I forget what it's called, it was in the Book of the Fours, but he said, when the rulers are bad, the weather doesn't work and the crops don't yield. So even back then, there was an understanding in him of you know, the need for organized care of our environment and So as offering our practice back and our gratitude to the hills and the stream and the trees and to each other and to those who sat in front of us and behind us and beside us and to those who we may have irritated. Shantideva, in the Mahayana tradition, um, I know this, and some of you may know who Lama Zopa is, he's very intense and peculiar. He always gives a talk with his eyes closed. He says, if you have a problem, drop the emptiness bomb. (laughs) Very useful. (laughs) But there was a time when, now there's a fad culturally to build bigger and bigger Buddhas for some reason all over the world. And he was going to build a giant one in a Muslim village outside of Bodhgaya, India. And the local people didn't like it. And he said, well, maybe by being super irritated by the image of the Buddha, it will become an imprint for their future lives and they'll get enlightened. (laughs) (laughs) But may all of those whom we feel we may have irritated, um, may they become enlightened. Shantideva, may those who insult me to my face or cause me harm in any other way, even those who disparage me in secret, have the good fortune to awaken. May I be a guard for those without one, a guide for all who journey on the road. May I become a boat, a raft, a bridge for all who wish to cross the water. I might add for our culture, may I be a sister for those who need a sister, a brother for those who need a brother, a parent, a friend an enemy of someone who needs one. May I be in some way um, of service for this world as part of my participation in life. That's the kind of the bodhisattva vow is as we give ourselves to this life and give, give ourselves to our path, that our life and our path are united And I think having a a big aspiration is good because it kind of gathers up all the instances in it. Like, it's not a grandiose thing. It's something about um, what we're willing to endure, I suppose. So 
So I'll close with uh, reminding us, some of you know of Parker Palmer, who's an educator and has written some beautiful books called The Courage to Teach and At the Edge of Everything, which is about life, you know, and death. He has an image where he has a niece who is young and he says he just watches her expecting the world to delight her, this kind of young mind, which actually some of us mentioned touching on the, the young mind while we're here, you know, just the absorption in, in life, but expecting the world to delight her. And he says now, you know, he's old and he's gone through his many mistakes and his clinical depressions and stuff. And he says, what does he expect of himself? He said, just to be able to rejoice in life. And that, I think, is kind of part of the buddhiness that we have. And when he says expect, it might mean that there might be some distance to travel, but we can do it. It's not a big, it's not such a big distance. So thank you all for your attention and maybe the Clouds have parted and we might see a little bit of the moon. Who knows? I hope so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.